Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends at Future Primitive. Today I am on the phone with Leslie Sponsel. He has a PhD in biological and cultural anthropology. Over the last four decades, he has taught at seven universities in four countries. His courses include, amongst others, ecological anthropology, environmental anthropology, spiritual ecology, and sacred places. From 1974 to 1981, Sponsel conducted several trips to the Venezuelan Amazon to study human ecology with the Yanomani and other indigenous societies. Almost yearly since 1986, Sponsel has made research trips to Thailand to study various aspects of Buddhist ecology and environmentalism together with his wife, Dr. Porani Natadesha Sponsel. In recent years, their work in northern Thailand has focused on exploring sacred caves. His latest book is Spiritual Ecology, A Quiet Revolution. Next up is the book Natural Wisdom, Exploring Buddhist Ecology and Environmentalism. He is developing the Research Institute for Spiritual Ecology, RISE, and his website as founding director. Leslie Sponsol, I want to quote a line from you. A far more pre- profound rethinking, refeeling, and revisioning of the place of humans in nature is required. Could you speak to this? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, that really reflects some of the um, words of Lynn White. Uh, he was a specialist on medieval Europe, the history of medieval Europe at UCLA. And he wrote an article in 1967 in the journal Science on the roots of the, the ecological crisis. And in that, among other things uh, very important, he said that we really need a fundamental rethinking, re-feeling, <laughs> and revisioning of um, our place in nature. And uh, his article I've read is, is the single most cited article in the history of the journal Science. Mm-hmm. And yet he was a historian. Um, and it's echoed in the literature to this day uh, whether or not people um, uh, cite it explicitly. Uh, it's 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 really had a profound influence, and he suggested uh, Saint Francis <laughs> as mm-hmm. um, an alternative route for Christianity to be more uh, environmentally friendly, 
let's say. But he also mentioned uh, a, a Zen Buddhism, mm -hmm. uh, although he didn't think that would really catch on in uh, the West. Uh, but uh, we're seeing it spreading. <laughs> so uh, uh, who knows? So, so that statement uh, is really a reflection from Lynn White. Yes. Um, and I, I firmly believe it. Uh, you know, we had Earth Day 1970, uh, April 22nd, and we have it every year, and it's become an international celebration as well. And uh, since then, there's been just tremendous activity and development in secular approaches to the environment and environmental uh, problems. But there are still environmental problems, and they're getting worse, worse of all, uh, global climate change. And so the secular approaches have been extremely important. They've been positive, helpful, but they haven't been enough. And so my hope is, and that of many others, is that what I'm calling a quiet revolution of spiritual ecology may finally turn things around for the better, uh, but only time is going to tell, and I, I don't know how much time we really have left um, before there is really catastrophic environmental problems. Well, yes, this is um, this is the situation, and uh, you know, as Andre Malraux said, the twenty first century will be spiritual or it won't. It is possible that the ecology movement must be spiritual or it won't um, help yes. help us all around. Yes, and one of the interesting things, uh, and this is argued in a complimentary book by Bron Taylor called Dark Green Religion. Uh, he's in the Department of Religion at the University of Florida, and uh, the chapter in my book on supernovas uh, includes some discussion of his work, and uh, he is a supernova in a sense of a flash of light, enlightenment, mm -hmm. uh, and energy, and so forth. And um, in his book, Dark Green Religion, um, he's really he he makes the point, and others do as well, including me, that many biologists and environmentalists and naturalists and conservationists are in part ultimately um, inspired and stimulated by some experience in nature that um, is probably mystical or spiritual in, in, in character. Um, and so, you know, a lot is driving this. A lot of them wouldn't admit this explicitly, especially those who are scientists who, you know, they want to separate out the so-called realms of reason and emotion and the natural and the supernatural. But um, if some of them do admit or at least imply that they've had these extraordinary, awesome, powerful experiences in nature, which often is a feeling of a, a, a profound unity Mm -hmm. and interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. And I think your your listeners and many other people, I, I would guess almost everyone has had some 
kind of experience in nature. And, and often it's ineffable. It, you can't really put it in words. Yeah, definitely. And yet, um, if ecology, or in other words, uh, a movement for us to reconnect with what we are in what we are, um, if ecology didn't exist, as I said to you before we spoke, I would feel deep desperation. But yet it is desperation that is leading a lot of people to um, destroy the planet. Can you speak to that from your heart? Yes, well, <laughs> I, I love a, um, a uh, phrase from Taoism that he um, who knows he has enough is rich. <laughs> mm. And that reflects on the whole matter of uh, consumerism and materialism and what is, in a sense, the opposite, which is um, uh, voluntary simplicity, and like Thoreau, like Gandhi, uh, like a contemporary Jim Merkel, M-E-R-K-E-L, and others. Um, you know, nowadays, the, the places of worship for many people are the fast food joints, the shopping malls, um, maybe the movie theaters, uh, things like that. Here in Hawaii, uh, a lot of tourists use jet skis, mm. and I think they are um, fixed on the machinery, the technology, uh, whereas others, and particularly locals, are surfers. And uh, the point is not the surfboard, but it's the ocean and the experience of that. And in fact, Bron Taylor in his book, Dark Green Religion, has a whole chapter on surfing as a spiritual experience. So I think we've really become addic addicted to the material, and a lot of us to some degree, and some so much so that it's pathological and it is really um, contributing to a lot of social and environmental problems. And for me and others, uh, I think one hope, one catalyst to escape this is to go back to nature, mm -hmm. uh, to experience nature. And there is a whole field that overlaps with my umbrella term, spiritual ecology, And that field is uh, eco-psychology. Eco yes. And you, among others, you've interviewed Ralph Metzner and Craig Chalquist. Exactly. And they're into that realm of eco-psychology. And basically what eco-psychology is arguing and demonstrating is that many problems of emotional and physical health and even social uh, health health of the society mm -hmm. relate to an alienation from nature and to heal self and others and society uh, we need to reconnect with nature and one, one of the again supernovas one, uh, I have a whole chapter on her Joanna Macy mm -hmm. is doing just that and she's dealing with the uh, grief and anxiety and frustration that many people feel in, um, 
in, in knowing about the degradation or what Bill McKibben called the death of nature and uh, how to cope with that, how to grieve, mourn, but how to transcend that and uh, become a activist in promoting a, a, a more eco, what I call eco-sanity in, uh, instead of eco-side. <laughs> yes, yes. So eco-psychology is one route to get away from this, uh, what, what you call, I think, destitution or desperation. Yeah. And, you know, some of the richest people in the world commit suicide. Some of the richest people in the world have substance abuse problems or dysfunctional families or other problems. And uh, some of the happiest people in the world are poor. Um, and people that realize that the material isn't where it is, that it's individual inner development, spiritual development. Um, and and again, I think of this Taoist saying, um, and also um, I really love a statement by a Jesuit priest, geologist, evolutionist, uh, Pierre de Chardin, uh, Teilhard de Chardin, yes. who's influenced a lot of others. And I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like, humans are not uh, beings having a spiritual experience, but they are spirits having a human experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's profound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Let's take a little journey back in time. You say the many roots of spiritual ecology are deep, extending back at least some 30,000 years ago to cave paintings in the upper Paleolithic in France. Uh -huh. And also you've been exploring caves in Thailand with your oh, yeah. wife. So... Tell us about that. Well, I, I hope many of your listeners and you have, have seen the Werner Herzog film, yes. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And uh, that's sort of the latest um, and on, on caves. And uh, they're dealing, they're, they, they discovered, um, it's the Chavette Cave, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, in France. Um, and the, they, ha, they have pristine Upper Paleolithic artwork that's dated around 30,000 years ago. Um, and there are many other sacred caves throughout the world. I recently authored a kind of a article literature review surveying that subject. And sacred caves, to me, are one, and others, are one evidence of... Um, the sacred and the supernatural, the spiritual, in nature going way back tens of thousands of years ago. Um, and, and I think from my point of view, again, an umbrella term, animism, which isn't always used favorably or, or, or isn't in fashion often, uh -huh. animism, uh, nature is animated, uh, the state of New Mexico, I think its its state motto is enchanted, yes. or, or, or title enchanted. And that's certainly true. I used to travel to Santa Fe and explore Chimayo and other places, 
and uh, it's just, it's so remarkable. It's really awesome. And so uh, one of my acquaintances there, um, Brad Draper, uh, uh, photographs rock art, and it's simply all over the place. You could even argue that many parts of the landscape are sacred. And so um, I, I see animism as a, a belief in spiritual forces and beings in nature. And a lot of people would say it isn't just a belief. <laughs> there are such forces and beings in nature, and I've communed with them. I've communicated with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've experienced them. And this sacred cave, um, Chauvet, uh, C-H-A-U-V-E-T, in France, 30,000 years ago, the, one of the explanations is that the, uh, the uh, humans in the region at the time, uh, some of them were specialists in communicating with spiritual forces and beings in nature, uh, shamans and that they um, were making these cave paintings, and those cave paintings were part of uh, a sacred ritual, uh, which may have had many different meanings and, and functions. And so I, I see animism as the world religion. It's the oldest, it's the most widespread of all world religions. Um, and uh, it may extend back you know, tens of thousands of years. Of course, it's manifest in many different ways, uh, just as are what are usually called the world religions like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and so on, Hinduism, Judaism. But um, those are a couple of thousand or so years old, uh, and animism must be um, uh, tens of thousands of years old in one expression or another. And it's the Native Americans and it's many indigenous peoples throughout the world to this day who are still uh, animus in one way or another to some degree, even though they may also have accepted aspects of Christianity or or whatever religion. Where I work in Thailand, uh, and my wife is Thai, and we're exploring sacred caves uh, as a project, uh, for a number of years now, long-term project and almost like a hobby, um, those caves often have images of the Buddha in, in various positions, uh, a, a shrine or an altar, but they also may have Hindu deity. They may also have um, images that reflect animism as well. And so the Thai religion is predominantly Buddhism, but there are elements of Hinduism and animism that are embraced as well. Mm-hmm. So I really see animism as the, the, the most widespread and ancient of all world religions. And um, the whole field, the whole arena of neo-paganism Starhawk and Graham Harvey and others that are involved in this and have written about it, mm-hmm. that, that's a variant of animism. And uh, they're very much tuned into nature as well. The, these are, are a, a kind of spiritual ecology. Well, let's speak about the quiet revolution. 
You've just published a book in uh, 2012 called Spiritual Ecology, A Quiet Revolution. Uh, how did you come to writing this book? Well, it's the dedication to my wife, colleague, inspiration and joy. Um, it all began in Thailand uh, with her. And um, in Thailand, uh, if you're on a train or on a, a, a road highway or a city street in Bangkok or at the Hilton Hotel or whatever, you often see large ancient trees that are marked as something special by colored cloth wrapped around them mm. uh, of varied, various colors and often a little spirit house adjacent to them and some other things that are really signaling that these are sacred trees. And so that got me thinking about the sacred in nature, and that's what led really to uh, spiritual ecology. In combination with exploring Buddhism and seeing what I and others have argued is an inherent um, ecology and environmentalism in Buddhism itself, uh, in, in the text it's reflected in the Buddhist life and in the community of followers, the Sangha. Uh, and, uh, and my wife and I, my wife's Buddhist and I've become a Buddhist, we have been exploring this as well, uh, uh, both in Thailand in field research and also in reviewing the literature. So this is how I got started. And again, <laughs> I, I've taught uh, courses on human ecology, on war and peace, and so forth for four decades. Um, but it's often rather dismal experience not, uh, because it, it can be depressing. But spiritual ecology, you know, I really enjoy exploring this. It's really positive, uplifting, hopeful, promising. And like your website, um, Future Primitive, it's, it, it, it's just so rich. There are just so many possibilities and so many good things happening. So I'm, I, I, I'm increasingly, I started the, the actual research on the book in around 2003, and then the last three years I spent writing off and on. And uh, uh, I'm really focusing as much of my time and energy as possible on this subject, including uh, developing the website for the book, which is simply spiritual ecology, one word, dot info, I-N-F-O. And there's a lot of information on there that I'm using to supplement the book because publishers only allow so many words, so many pages, and I had to leave out so much. Uh, so this website is an avenue to... Um, put in some of the things that I, I didn't have space for in the book. Many revolutionaries who have contributed to the quiet revolution in the past and now have experienced their own personal revolution. Would you be willing to talk about uh, your own personal revolution? Oh, yes. And, and let me just say uh, first about the, the term quiet revolution, uh, I meant revolution in the sense of a movement 
with growing momentum that's leading in the direction of profound transformation and has far-reaching consequences, but not a revolution in the sense of something happening overnight or something that is violent, bloody, uh, etc. But it is radical <laughs> because it is getting uh, not its superficial symptoms of the environmental problems from the local to the global levels, but getting at the root causes, uh, radical meaning root, mm-hmm. um, and also that fundamental changes are needed. Um, in my own case, as you ask, um, let me give you a, a first an example, specific example. I grew up in a Christian family, and uh, I respect Christianity. Um, and like any religion, it, it people themselves, not the religion, can be good or bad. Uh, they can there can be fanatics, extremists, etc. That that really abuse the religion, but for political, uh, economic, or whatever purposes. But uh, I, I became a Buddhist. Um, and it's not as much as a religion as a philosophy of life and a lifestyle. And so in my home, and this is a specific example, when an insect, a fly or a moth or whatever would enter the home, the first response was to take a, fold up some newspaper or take a fly swatter and smash the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but my wife's family had a custom of uh, somehow catching the insect and releasing it outside. And so in our home, we have some holes in our screens, and on occasion an insect visits us, and so we have something called the cup of liberation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a clear plastic cup and a piece of cardboard, like from a a tablet of paper, and we put the cup over the insect that's against a wall or window and slide the cardboard underneath and then take the insect in the cup to the door, open the door, and release it. It's liberated. And you feel good about it. And the point is... If you can be so compassionate and concerned about the life of an insect, what about a human life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and so that's one particular example. Um, in my own life, uh, there is a, um, what is it called now? Uh, there's an electronic journal. I think it's just called the Green Journal. Mm-hmm. And one of the contributors to that has a column on spiritual experiences of environmentalists and others. And there's a brief, he asked me to contribute a brief uh, statement there. And he has also things on John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, and others. And anyway, um, in my life on a number of occasions in nature, I've had extraordinary experiences. And again, um, a feeling of unity, mm-hmm. um, a feeling of awe, of power, of uh, connectedness, these kinds of things. 
it's happened, uh, for example, with my father, who was an avid fisher and hunter, and uh, I, I can vividly remember sitting in a boat on a creek um, or small river in Indiana, where I grew up, um, and uh, fishing and feeling that sense of some kind of awesome experience in nature. I've had the same feeling in the Amazon, in a canoe, again fishing with um, Yanomami, a, a subgroup called Sanuma or Sanima in Venezuela. I've had the same feelings, kinds of feelings, in uh, the Rocky Mountains uh, uh, west of Calgary. I spent one summer teaching in Calgary and house setting for a couple of friends who were anthropologists, and on weekends I would drive to the, the mountains and enjoy hiking. And I can vividly remember, uh, and I don't know whether you'd call it epiphanies or not, but mm -hmm. simply an extraordinary experience. And again, I think your listeners, I would be surprised if there are many who, uh, who cannot recount these kinds of things happening in nature. Thank you um, for sharing I this. I don't know whether that answers your question sufficiently. Well, I've, I always love to hear about people's deep experiences with all that is. I mean, it's it's probably my favorite subject. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. You know, I'm I'm uh, an academic. Uh, uh, I, that's uh, that's been my life, my professional life, and so I'm coming at spiritual ecology mostly from that perspective. And in looking through the literature, and my book has quite a substantial bibliography on purpose which includes not just citations to publications, but also websites and films, and likewise the website. And in looking through that, surveying that, I'm still reading there's so much, including your website, that I need to really explore more. Um, but in that literature, most of it, most of the time, there's very little reference, especially in any detail explicitly, to spiritual experience in nature, um, but it's there. And oh. occasionally you can see it reading between the lines or whatever. Sometimes it's very explicit, as in John Muir or uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau or Edward Abbey or some of these other wonderful writers. Um, but I think Thomas Berry, uh, another Jesuit uh, Catholic priest and uh, uh, a theologian and uh, really an inspiration for many people. Uh, he's, he has said uh, in his book, um, Evening Thoughts, Reflecting on Earth as a, a Sacred Community, uh, there's a quote that I have on my website from him. The universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. Mm. And I think... You know, that's part of spiritual ecology, part of what people are experiencing in nature, including me, that communion of subjects. Yes, absolutely. Let's um, talk about war and peace, um, right. if you wish. As you like. 
um, because I think uh, it's very important in the sense that um, it's uh, it's very much uh, what we need for war that is destructive to the planet. So if you would speak about your thoughts on war and peace. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> where to begin? Yeah. Uh, one, one of the interesting things is um, the coverage in the mainstream media, uh, not only television, but the, the print media and, and so forth and so on. And that is uh, we don't hear much about the environmental impact of war. Uh, whether it's recently in Iraq and Afghanistan or elsewhere, Syria. Um, and um, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, and I think you can find this in, in the Dalai Lama's, uh, his, his Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, in his um, speeches and writings and so forth, um, and and that is uh, peace begins with oneself, <laughs> yes. and it radiates out from there. And so I don't have a lot of hope, whether it's in, in the matter of environmental crises from the local to the global level, or whether it's uh, war and other violent crises, or whether it's uh, homelessness or hunger or whatever other problems. I don't have a lot of hope in the people at the top, mm-hmm. um, the policymakers, the governments of the world, and so forth. My hope is in the common people, uh, the communities, the grassroots level. And one of my colleagues out here in Hawaii, incidentally, uh, Gerald Martin, a zoologist who does human ecology, has a website called Eco-Tipping Points, mm-hmm. Eco-Tipping Points, in which there are a lot of examples of communities that have faced environmental problems and have turned them around. Another colleague here uh, is Glenn Page, and he his website is for the Center for Global Non-Killing, and it's just nonkilling.org. And... Um, it's a different way of looking at issues of war and peace. And he hones in on non-killing because it's something very concrete, specific. Uh, killing, that is, is very, something very concrete, specific, measurable, quantifiable, and you can show progress. And so as a political scientist, he wrote a book about global uh, uh, non-killing. I don't have the exact title at, at hand. And then that book's been translated into dozens of different languages in the world. And uh, there have been a whole series of other books, mostly edited, exploring various aspects of that. I think the most re- recent is on uh, non-killing futures um, by futurists. I contributed to a book on non-killing societies. And at any rate, the idea of whatever you call it, non-killing, ahimsa, and so forth from the Asian religions, that idea is a counter, uh, a challenge to a world that that is really, um, how to put it, 
much addicted to killing. <laughs> There, there, is a, there is also a book free on website by Joel Andreas called Addicted to War, which is specifically about the history of U.S. militarism throughout the world. And again, non-killing is another way of looking at all of this, of looking at human nature, and of looking at the possibilities uh, for the future. Um, and, and, you know, look at the, the Arab Spring and what's happened in Libya or Tunisia, what's happening in Egypt, what's happening in Syria especially. Is the killing resolving anything, or is it just generating more violence? And uh, it, it's such a horrible scene. And, of course, it's the women and the children and the elderly and the innocent that are the, the victims of this, and uh, how do we somehow resolve disputes um, in, with a non-killing means through mediation and so forth? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this is another revolution, <laughs> the idea of non-killing, and it has deep roots. Gandhi, uh, Thoreau, civil disobedience, Martin Luther King's uh, as a leader of the civil rights movement in the U.S., nonviolent, and so on, and look what it's achieved, and uh, where we are today with a president who is an Afro-American. Um, you know, things things do change, <laughs> and so my role in looking at war and peace has been as an anthropologist, and I have been up against well, Dwight. Eisenhower in his farewell speech to the nation as president, I believe it was in 52, uh, worried, even though he was a military man, a general, and, and, you know, led the Normandy invasion and all of that in World War II. He worried about what he called the military-industrial complex. I refer to that as the military-industrial-media academic complex Mm -hmm. and what that says among other things is that human nature is basically territorial competitive aggressive warlike and so forth and so that feeds into things like the idea of a preemptive war or preemptive strike Uh, what happened in the case of the iraq war and we've heard about the um, casualties of that war in terms of U.S. and coalition forces. We haven't heard much about the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that have been killed and injured physically, mentally, and so forth. And now that Iraq war is coming home. Mm -hmm. The veterans are coming home. They have to somehow transition to peace and society, and many of them have the terrible burden of the post-traumatic stress disorder and so forth. Uh, uh, the top leadership is, is quick to send them to war. When they come home, it's not so quick and efficient in helping them readjust. And so the war is coming home, and we're going to be paying the price of that. We already are in society, not just in monetary terms, but in suffering and so forth. 
So there's got to be an alternative, and as an anthropologist, I have marshaled arguments and evidence for the natural history of peace. That doesn't deny by any means that there is war and violence and so forth, but it does refocus on the other side of the coin, the the more positive side of human nature. Mm-hmm. And in the specific case, I, I in 74, 75, I did some field research with the Yanomami and the Amazon yes. of Venezuela um, as part of my dissertation at Cornell University in Anthropology. And um, they have been portrayed um, by one anthropologist among dozens who have worked with them as the fierce people. And now in a memoir that just came out last week, uh, the author Napoleon Chagnon, uh, the title is Noble Savages, and the subtitle is my life among two dangerous tribes, the Yanomamu and the anthropologists. And so I've uh, written some articles which which really challenge his work. Um, His work is undoubtedly part of the work that is feeding into this military, industrial, media, academic complex. And so, you know, if there's, if there's uh, a war developing here or there, and you could hear the drums of war beating for the invasion of Iraq and the shock and awe, mm-hmm. which I take as euphemisms for terrorism of the civilian population with the bombing, and we saw it on CNN, um, if you uh, look at that, I think there's an underlying assumption among a lot of different rationalizations that human nature is basically uh, aggressive, territorial, warlike, and so forth, and that we have to respond to that with aggression, Um, that we can't let all all of the diplomatic possibilities and other nonviolent possibilities of Uh, resolving a dispute uh, play out Um, and and you know war absolutely has to be the very last resort if at all (laughs) and now we're facing North Korea the development there of nuclear weapons uh, and other problems throughout the world possibly Iran but again it depends which media you're following (laughs) democracy now for example or Fox News <laughs> as to what take you have on that. But I think underlying a lot of this is the idea that uh, human nature is inevitably competitive, territorial, and aggressive and warlike, and it just isn't so. There are a lot of non-killing or non-violent peaceful societies in the world, and uh, they don't get much uh, recognition and attention and research. In anthropology, you know, you, there are shelves and shelves of books on war and aggression and violence. Um, the number of books on peace wouldn't even fill up a shelf. <laughs> um, it just it hasn't been on the agenda. And I think it's partly cultural conditioning 
we've just been brainwashed. Uh, we haven't seen the uh, the other side of human nature, which is the side that actually predominates. As Glenn Page uh, often points out, you know, the overwhelming majority of humans all times, 99% or more, have never killed another human. Oh. Yeah. And, and, you know, this relates to spiritual ecology. And whereas Glenn Page, who I really respect and admire, and he's a revolutionary, uh, a nonviolent one, um, and his work, his website, nonkilling.org, nevertheless, I disagree with him on one point to some extent, and that is I see spiritual ecology as even more basic. Um, I think if we were tuned into nature and if we pursued what the eco-psychologists are telling us and we could restore our individual health, uh, particularly mentally, emotionally, and that of our society, then I think there would be less killing, less violence, less aggression. And all of this debate about, um, you know, gun control... (laughs) And the, the Rifle Association and so forth, it's, it's so superficial and so much of it is misinformed and misinforming, misleading. Um, you know, there, it, it, there are things that are much more basic about uh, human society and existence and American culture and all that and relating to other humans. And part of it goes back again to Thomas Berry that we are a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects or targets for self-defense or for war or whatever. And I, I have wondered, for example, in the case of this whole gun debate uh, and the, the tragedies of the school shootings and so forth, uh, I've wondered, most Americans identify themselves as Christians, including mm-hmm. gun owners, including gun fanatics, mm-hmm. including the National Rifle Association people, etc. Well, I wonder, what kind of gun would Jesus pack? <laughs> right. You know, how much of an how much of a ammunition clip would he need for an automatic weapon? Yeah. And Christians are supposedly following Christ. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how do you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I the the whole element of religion has not played much in these discussions and debates over gun control. And again, I see religion or much more inclusively, broadly, spirituality as what is so very basic and so powerful and potentially could turn things around. If it doesn't, if this quiet revolution doesn't play out in time and and really... Uh, generate what uh, Joanna Macy calls the great turning. Uh, others call it other things, but um, if that doesn't happen, then what else is there? And you know, I'm not I'm not uh, holding my breath, waiting for some extraterrestrial intelligence to come down to planet Earth and clean things up. I think if there is any extraterrestrial intelligence out there, it would avoid Earth at all costs. <laughs> um, you know, I I think the hope is with us in our home planet. Thank you. Uh, and also, 
we need to be more humble um, and not think that we're so all-powerful and not be so arrogant about our place in nature and so forth. I mean, what's happening with global climate change, extreme events, the storms, the uh, hurricane Sandy and so forth and so on, Earth is powerful. Nature is powerful. Humans are, you know, and, and geologically, from the point of view of evolution, humans are just a, a brief moment in time. And there's a wonderful book by Ellen Weissman called The World Without Us, in which he speculates, but on the grounds of some firm information, what are the possibilities for um, mm-hmm. nature if humans were to disappear, right? How would New York City eventually be recovered by nature? The subway system, everything, the buildings, etc. You know, look at the cover of my book, which has um, um, a, a, a picture of uh, Angkor Wat. Uh, yes. Poem, uh, Tom Poem May, in particular, site, and you see nature taking over these magnificent uh, stone structures from the Khmer Empire. Um, and, and, you know, nature is resilient. Uh, in places it won't return to the way it may have been prior to human impacts, but it will return. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nature, we're, nature. We're so small in all of this. Uh, Les, thank you so much for um, speaking with us. And uh, the time has come for me to ask you, what would you like to say in closing, Dr. Sponsor? Oh, my. <laughs> it's gone very fast. It has. We've touched it on has. many things. Yes. But uh, the one thing I would say is to your listeners explore the website uh, of my book, uh, spiritualecology.info, but explore Joanna's website, (laughs) Future Primitive, and donate, (laughs) donate, help her. She's part of this quiet revolution and a very important part. So that, and then I just end again with Barry's uh, statement, the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And so just experience spiritual ecology for yourself, intellectually, uh, in terms of your actions, in terms of your personal spirituality. Get out in nature. And I guess a lot of your listeners are from New Mexico. It's the enchanted state. (laughs) But so is Hawaii, and so are other places. In any place you can find uh, nature and you can have spiritual experiences, which are very uh, health-sustaining. <laughs> Thanks for your generosity. Well, thank you, and, and uh, the best wishes to you in your work. <laughs>